I get to preach today. Amen. This is one of my favorite things to do. It brings great joy to my soul. So please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let's just get a review of chapter 2. Chapter 2, we learned first of the righteous judgment of God. And we learned of the Jew and their relationship to the law. We learned that the Jews are just as guilty and deserving of judgment as the Gentiles. And that probably came as a shock to a lot of them that heard that. They, weren't, they didn't like hearing stuff like that. In chapter 3, we're going to see God's judgment defended and that God's righteousness is obtained by grace alone through faith alone not by law-keeping. We'll see in chapter 3 that there is an advantage to being a Jew, but being a Jew and relying on law-keeping will not save you. We also see in chapter 3 that no one is righteous, Jew or otherwise. That's going to be a shock to some of us. We're not going to like to hear that. We'll see that the only way to the righteousness of God is through faith. For the Jew and, it says for the Greek, but it means for everyone else. It's for everyone. Now, keep in mind, this is all written to help us get along better as a church. It's easy to get caught up in, oh, that was Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile to help the Jews get along with the Gentiles in the church. And yes, it was written for that purpose. See that greatly at the end of the book. But it's written for our learning as well. Because one of our chief problems in the church is getting along with each other, if we're honest. And so this is to help us all better love each other, serve each other through love, and have unity through humility, love, and service for the sake of the gospel and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so keep that in context and frame as we're reading through these passages together and learning from the book of Romans. God wants us all to live in unity for the glory of Christ in his body, the church. There's no place for pride or boasting by anyone in the church. Jew, Gentiles, circumcised, uncircumcised, Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, or any other way you can make yourself out to be different or better than someone else. We saw this heavily in the book of Galatians, and we see it here again in Romans. Kind of a common problem in the early church, and I'd say we still have the problem in our churches today. We're probably going to have it until Jesus comes back. And so let's, let's learn from these scriptures and, and try to do better and ask for God's help. Now this one, this one can be a hard text to understand here in Romans chapter 3, especially the beginning. <clears throat> And especially given what we just learned in chapter 2 concerning being a Jew and the value of circumcision and keeping the law. The end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 seem to be a contradiction of each other. But we'll see that they're actually not at all. We're dealing here with this question. What is the difference between being a spiritual Jew and a Jew by birth? Is there a difference at all? Does God still care about Israel as a nation? 
Has the believing church today become the new Israel and replaced the, and replaced the old? You read a lot of theological stuff and papers, you might have seen some of that kind of talk. And this text begins to unlock the answers to all those questions. I'm not going to get into the final answers of all those questions. We'll kind of hint at it and get at it. But the book of Romans deals with it over and over and over again, more and more heavily in like 9 through uh, 11. But we'll see here more on, and we'll see more on this later in the book. But we're going to start unlocking some of the answers to those questions even now. So let's back up to the end of chapter 2. And start there. The end of chapter 2. Look at verse 228. Paul writes this. There's no, there is, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? So this is chapter 3, verse 1. Or what value is the value of circumcision? Okay, so let's pause right there. So if we hadn't read any further, and some of you probably already read ahead, given what we just read at the end of chapter 2, how would you answer that question, given what we just read? What would be your natural answer to the question, you know, what advantage has the Jew or what value uh, is there in circumcision? You'd say none, right? Hey, I just read it. No advantage at all in being a Jew. No advantage of circumcision. That's all old stuff, not needed anymore. No advantage at all. Now, in the new covenant, it's all about the heart. No advantage to being a Jew. Seemingly nothing at all, based on what we just read there at the end of chapter 2. And see, this is why you've got to read the Bible in context. <laughs> because if you just laser in on the end of chapter 2, you can go and create a whole theological framework around that, and you'd, be, you'd find yourself in big trouble. Because it's not going to reconcile exactly with the very next verse, right? You've got to take the whole thing in context. That's what we're going to do here. And so the answer to that question, you would say, well, seemingly no advantage. Well, that's not the answer Paul gives us. He poses the question, what advantage then has the Jew? What advantage is there to circumcision? What's, what's the big deal anyway? Well, in fact, Paul gives the opposite answer. Look at verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. Much in every way. Now, wait a minute, Paul. Didn't you just say that it's all about the heart and the spirit and not the letter? Didn't you just say that? How then is being a Jew an advantage? So when you stumble on a text like this, as I did in preparing the sermon, you just kind of stumble. Texts like this make you trip. They do me anyway. It's like, all right. It's like the, you're, you're in a place, you know, the, the, the music's playing, and then someone scratches the record. <laughs> Wait just a minute. <laughs> exactly. Hey, those are coming back now. Records are coming back. <laughs> it's like, what just happened here? What advantage then, Paul? Well, the scripture shows us over and over again how being a Jew is an advantage. So, look, uh, right there, verse uh, 2, let's keep on. To begin with, chiefly, first of all, those are all the different translations, but he really means mainly, chiefly, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's the, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. That should be a treasure to our soul. 
They were entrusted with the scriptures. We see, th we see throughout the scripture that the Lord has chosen Israel to be his people, a light to the nations to lead them to God. We just saw in Romans 2 that they're instructed from the law and were to be a guide to the blind. Remember that? A light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish. They have in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and of knowledge of God and truth. And not only do we see this in Romans, but we see it throughout the Bible. Deuteronomy 33, 29 says this, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places. Oh, rejoice, O Israel, happy are you. The Lord is your God. God has often spoken with, with a great deal of respect and blessing for the Jews. They're described as a holy nation, a peculiar treasure, the seed of Abraham, his friend. He instituted circumcision as a sign of their covenant relationship to him. Now, how is it now that after what Paul just said at the end of chapter 2, that these things are still meaningful? How is it that they still matter? Is circumcision now a dishonor and a fruitless, insignificant thing? Well, certainly not. There's much value and honor in being a circumcised Jew. But get this, these things, and this is the point, these things are not infallible and will never save your soul. Nothing you do as a work will ever save you, Jew or Gentile. God is just and will bring wrath against all who sin, both Jew and otherwise. The fact alone that you're a circumcised Jewish person does not save you. The door is open to salvation for both the Gentiles as well as the Jews, but the Jews have a fairer way up to that door. How, you ask? Well, by the way of their covenant privileges, which are not to be undervalued. Though they have them, you know, they'll perish eternally for not living up to them. They've had all this light shown on them, all these covenant privileges, all of God's word given to them, yet they still don't live up to them, sadly. Now, he discusses, the Apostle Paul does, many of the Jews' privileges in Romans 9. But here he just mentions one, that to them were committed the oracles of God, or to them were entrusted the oracles of God. The oracles of God are the scriptures of the Old Testament. I'll say that again. It's God's word. The types, the promises, the prophecies, which relate to Christ and the gospel. The scriptures are the oracles of God. They are a divine revelation. They come from heaven. They are infallible truth and of eternal consequence. God's word was committed to the Jews. The Old Testament was written in their language. Moses and the prophets were of their nation. They lived among them. It was preached and wrote primarily to and for the Jews. God's word was committed to them as trustees 
to be given down to succeeding ages. The scripture was deposited into their hands to carefully preserve it and keep it pure to be passed on. They were entrusted with this sacred treasure for their own use and for and benefit in the first place and then to be a light to the world. The Jews had the means of salvation, but not a monopoly on salvation. For we know that all who trust on the Lord will be saved. Now, Paul uses the words here in our text, first of all, or chiefly. This was their prime and principal privilege and responsibility. The enjoyment of God and his word is the chief happiness of a people. And we've been reading all about that in Psalm 119, which we just finished up. We see in Psalm 147, 19, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt this way with any nation. So why this special and peculiar affection and love from the Lord? So that's the question I had. Why them? Why the Jewish people of all people? Why God? Why this special love for them? Well, Deuteronomy 7 answers that question very clearly. Deuteronomy 7 verse 7 says this. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, talking of Israel, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all people. So it's not because they were great or anything. It's not because they were mighty in power and, oh, that's the greatest nation. I'll choose them. No. No, he didn't choose them for that. For you were the least of all peoples. And then verse 8, here's, here's the answer. But because the Lord loves you. So why does God love Israel so like this? Why does he have this special peculiar love for Israel? Why? Well, he loves them because he loves them. <laughs> That's the answer. He loves them simply because he loves them. That's why. You're not going to go finding any other answer than that. He just loves them because he loves them, and he chose them because he loved them. And, and it, you can apply the same answer yourself. God, why would you choose me for salvation? Some rebel sinner who deserves wrath and judgment for my sin? Why, God, why would you choose me? Well, he loves me because he loves me. And I just thank God for that, and I can have rest for my soul in that. It's no great thing that I did why God chose me for salvation. It's no great thing that I did. In fact, I was running as far away from him as I could. And he just says, no, nope. I'm going to pull you up out of that horrible muddy pit. I'm going to clean you off. I'm going to give you some faith to believe in me. And I'm going to set your feet on a rock and make your footsteps firm. And I'm going to put a new song in your mouth, Ryan, a song of praise to me so that the world will see and fear and trust in me. That's what he does to us. And so he loves Israel because he loves them. And he chose them because he loves them. That's the answer. And so I ask myself, you know, should we not be like God in this peculiar attachment also? 
Should we not give the Jews, the Israelites, the same place in our heart that God gives them in his heart? Where is my love for the Jewish people? Do I love them like that? Where is our love, maybe as a church, for the Jewish people? Where is our longing and praying to see them saved? We see in Romans chapter 1 and 2 this theme of the Jew first. The gospel is for the Jew first. Did you catch that in Romans 1.16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And we usually stop there, right? We all, we memorize this verse in Awanas and Bible drill and flashcards, you know, and navigators, scripture memory systems and all those things. We memorize verse, we usually stop right there, but that's not where the verse ends. It continues, it says, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. And that phrase at the, at the end of it is very important. It's there for an important reason. The gospel is for the Jew first. And we also see that judgment will begin with the Jew first. The Jews will be the first to stand forward at the bar of God to be judged. Romans 2, 5-9 says this, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. That's terrifying, by the way. But don't miss, don't miss the end to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There it is again. So Paul's making a very strong point here, and he keeps repeating it. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. When the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books are open and the dead are judged out of the things written in the books... Everything we've ever done is written in the books and ever will do is written in the books. You're not hiding anything from God, by the way. It's all written in the books. And when we stand before judgment, when everyone stands before judgment, Israel, poor, blinded Israel, will be the first to stand in judgment before God. But, verse 10, glory, honor, and peace will be what? To the Jew first. Glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, now, why? Why to the Jew first? Well, because they received more light than any other people. Our, in our, our, our verse right here answers it. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. So judgment and blessing will come to the Jew first. To the Jew first. God's word has, was given chiefly to Israel. Every prophet was sent to them. Every evangelist and apostle had a message for them. So in case you think this is just Old Testament, no, it's, it's through the whole Bible. We'll see some New Testament passages as well. Beyond Romans that confirm this, every, all of this was sent to them first. Messiah Jesus even came to them first. Matthew 10, verse 5 says this, 
These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. So he's sending out the apostles to preach the gospel. Right? He's sending them out. And he gives them very specific instructions. Don't go into the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus came preaching the gospel to the Jew first. He sent his disciples to preach the gospel to the Jew first. Matthew 15, 22, we, hear, we see this story. Behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now you can imagine, here's this poor woman. She's crying out on behalf of her son. He's severely demon-possessed. I'm sure she's on her knees crying out over and over again. This wasn't just a one-time ask or one-time plea for help. She's crying out to Jesus. Now, how would you expect Jesus to answer? Knowing everything we know about Jesus, you'd expect him to say, oh, I see your faith. Your faith is going to make your daughter well. Go and you'll see her healed. Go and sin no more, right? That's, that's what you would think. If you didn't read on, that's how Jesus is going to handle this. But what does he say? He answered her not a word. He just sat there. Jesus did that. Well, that's mean, Jesus. Why would you do that? Here she is crying out to you, and you're not even going to answer her? He didn't say anything. And it got so bad that the disciples came and urged him, saying, Send, here's their compassion, watch this, send her away. She cries out after us. She's getting on our nerves, Jesus. Where's the compassion in this group? Where's the mercy? The disciples, man. You know, it's easy to point a finger, but sometimes we're just like that, right? Man, I'm busy. I got emails to reply to. I got phone calls to make. I got chores to do. You know, I, go, go away. But then Jesus finally answers after the disciples get in on this. <clears throat> and he says this. He answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Are you kidding me? That's his answer? He's making a bold point to the Jew first. I came to the Jew first. Now, she continues to ask, and he does heal her daughter. But notice his first response. I came for the sheep of the lost house, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's for the Jew first. Now, sometimes th those are things I don't fully understand. <laughs> but you know what? I have a very finite brain and a very small amount of understanding. And there's some things about God I probably never will understand. But that's not because he's not a great God. It's just because I'm a worm of a person. <laughs> I'm a worm of a man. We see it in the book of Acts also. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. 
So he tells them, stay in Jerusalem. After he's, uh, after he's, he's died and, and raised, he's like, just stay in Jerusalem. Now, why not leave Jerusalem? It is the Holy Spirit bound by space and time, and can he only appear in Jerusalem? Is that the reason? No. I mean, the Holy Spirit can be everywhere. The Holy Spirit of God is everywhere. So it wasn't just because the Holy Spirit is just for Jerusalem or can only be there in the temple or something like that. No. They were to remain in Jerusalem because the gospel was to go to the Jew first, then to the nations. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. Notice the order here. Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So it starts with the Jew first and goes to the ends of the earth. And he didn't say this either because Jerusalem was the hometown of the apostles. No, it wasn't their hometown. They weren't from there. They were probably ready to get out of there. <laughs> Jesus had been killed. They were frightened. Like, when can we get out of here? And he says, no, you stay here until the Holy Spirit comes, and then you're going to make disciples of all nations, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. And Peter, the apostle Peter, understood this. When he was preaching in Solomon's portico in Jerusalem, he said this, Acts chapter 3, You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. So Peter understood it. The Apostle Paul clearly understands it. He said this when he said this when he was preaching with Barnabas, Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. So he's talking to the Jews. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we're out of here. Now we're going to the Gentiles. Done with you. Had it with you. You're unbelieving, hardened hearts, going to the Gentiles. But he points out, it was given to you first, and you're squandering it. And we see throughout the book of Acts that the apostles first preached to the Jews in the synagogue. Read the book of Acts, you'll see it. Pattern, there's a pattern. First to the Jews in the synagogue. It's the first place they went on their missionary journeys, didn't they? They go to the synagogue. And if there wasn't a synagogue, because it took a certain number of people to form a synagogue, they'd say, hey, where did the Jews get together? In some places, there wasn't an official synagogue, but there were gatherings of Jews on the Sabbath. And so he would go, and he would preach to them first, because he understood this. So, in our text, we see that first of all, or chiefly, the Jews were entrusted with God's word. <clears throat> and it's the first in a list of many reasons that bring a Jew, being a Jew, has an advantage. And I'll give you a sneak preview of chapter 9 right now. Romans chapter 9, starting verse 3, he writes this. And this is a remarkable passage. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, don't miss that statement. Did you hear what he just said? He just said, I would give up my own salvation to see the Jews saved. Now, we're not talking about your bodily life here. We're talking about eternal wrath in hell, making a statement like that. I would trade my own salvation, eternal fellowship with Jesus Christ in his kingdom for eternal wrath and damnation and punishment in hell to see my kinsmen, the Jews, saved. That's what the Apostle Paul just said. Now, if the believing church today replaces Israel, the nation, Paul would not say that. He wouldn't need to say that. And then he goes on. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, from their race, according to their, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Jesus Christ is Jewish. It all belongs to them. Who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In Romans 1, we saw that Christ came from the seed of David. Our Lord Jesus is Jewish. He's an Israelite. So now, how does this all apply to us today? That's the, the question I ask next. So, okay, great. I get it. It's to the Jew first. I, I get that. Now, what about me? How does this apply to me today? What do I do with this? Well, Romans 11 answers that. Romans 11, 11 says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. To make Israel jealous? Really? Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Hallelujah! If you think you have it good now as a believer, salvation blessing, the peace of God, the Holy Spirit in your life, a future and living hope in your soul. If you think you've got it good now as a believer, you just wait till you see the Jewish people trust in Jesus and be saved. Life from the dead. You ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to be so great. So our job now as Gentile believers, according to Romans 11, is to provoke unbelieving Israel to jealousy. And in doing so, that some may be saved. So think about that. Think about 
sharing the gospel with our co-workers in our community. We don't need to be shying away from telling Jewish people about Jesus. No, in fact, that would be the opposite. And you would hope that they would see, like, wow, how does, how does he have such a, a joy in his heart and a walk with God? I want that. I want all of my feast keeping, and Yom Kippur, and Rosh Hashanah, and Passover, and all of the rituals, and all that to have meaning in my soul, not just be a ritual. And all of those things point to Jesus. But they do them so often just out of ritual and religion, not understanding how they point to Jesus and not connecting with, to the depth of the spiritual meaning of them. It's a ritual. How much more would those things have meaning in their lives if they connected them to Messiah? And so our work now is to live the gospel before them, share the gospel with them, and have them see, wow, look, look how God loves that brother or sister. Look at that. How come they have that? I'm Jewish. I should have that. That's the jealousy you provoke within them. That was meant for me. That's meant for my people. Why is this all just religion and ritual to me? How come they have the relationship with God and I don't? That's the jealousy they, that should be provoked in their hearts. When we live the gospel before them, when we share the gospel unashamedly with them, Sometimes we shy back, we're like, oh, well, they're Jewish. They got it covered. No, they don't. They don't. Don't assume that. Now, if you're greedy for spiritual blessing, and I certainly am, I am very greedy for spiritual blessing. I, I want as much of it as I can possibly get. And let's get busy sharing the gospel with Jewish people. Provoke them to jealousy that some may be saved. And it might be a harder thing to do. There might not be a lot of them around here. You might have to go be intentional about it. But you'll, if, you, if your eyes are open, your ears are open, you're going to run into some. Provoke them to jealousy that some may be saved. Zechariah 8.23 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men, from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And this scripture hasn't been fulfilled. But as the word of God is true, it will be. And so this is just a sneak preview of what's to come. We're going to cover this in much more detail when we preach Romans 9 through 11. But I encourage you to read ahead. Make it a habit. Be reading through the book of Romans every week. Man, just let, meditate on it. Let it soak in. It's not that long of a book. You can certainly read it in a few days of just individual study time. You can probably read it in one sitting. Take all the time you're spending watching uh, Netflix and TikTok and all that stuff and read Romans instead. And boy, that'll, that'll change your life. That'll change your life. Change my life too. Now, don't hear me incorrectly. The Bible doesn't say to preach to the Jews only, but it does say go to the Jews first. Our Lord tells us we're to make disciples of all the nations, Matthew 28. All right, so let's continue on. <clears throat> Look at verse 3. We'll, we'll wrap up with verses 3 through 8. They're not quite as in-depth as that one was. Now, what if some were unfaithful? I want to do these together because they, they fit together. 
What if some were unfaithful? What if some of the Jewish people were not faithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone else a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That's verses 3 and 4. Now, this is just a foolish argument from those who consider that Israel should not be judged for her sin because of her peculiar love from the Lord. There were some Jews who claim that they were the chosen descendants of Abraham and therefore wouldn't experience the judgment of God. And you can see this thinking by the Jews in the Gospels when Jesus and you know Jesus confronts the Jews and they're like, "Well, hey, our father's Abraham." You know, they make they play the Abraham card all the time. We're sons of Abraham. We're good. Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about. And he corrects them strongly. Man, you see Jesus, you, the only few times you see Jesus get angry, it's when he's confronting the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the prideful Jewish people who think they're all, all okay just because they're sons of Abraham. He, he didn't tolerate that for a second. He gets pretty upset with that. He corrects it strongly. And Paul is correcting it here. Now, the national salvation of Israel is as inevitable as God's promises are irrevocable. But that future certainty does not give individual Jews a guarantee of salvation if they're unrepentant and unbelieving. And we see that all over the scripture. All those who are unrepentant and unbelieving are judged, and the wrath of God abides, abides on them. It's inescapable. Israel as a whole had been blessed by God, but this alone doesn't guarantee a perfect future. If they expect God's special blessing, then they had better be faithful to what was entrusted to them, and sadly, most of them are not. Israel, in spite of all its special privileges, was unfaithful to God, and as a result, the name of God was being blasphemed among the Gentiles. That's chapter 2, verse 24. Now, Paul is quoting here Psalm 51.4 to back up his argument, indicating that God is perfectly just to judge sin. Psalm 51 was a psalm David wrote after being confronted concerning his adultery with Bathsheba. <clears throat> And it's a very appropriate psalm to quote here concerning Israel's judgment for her spiritual adultery against the Lord and unbelief in Christ. David wrote this in Psalm 51, 4, Against you and you only I have sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So King David, a Jew, a man after God's own heart, declares boldly that God is perfectly righteous and just in condemning and judging sin, even his own. And Paul continues, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? 
But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And so look, anyone who says we should sin more so that God's glory and grace may increase, they deserve the condemnation that the Lord has waiting for them. That's, that's what he's, he's saying here. This is just foolish reasoning, and it doesn't come at all from a proper understanding of Scripture. Now, I've never heard anybody say something like that personally, but apparently there were people saying that. And so if you ever hear people say, well, hey, let's sin more that grace may abound, come on. That's, that's stupid. <laughs> that's wrong thinking. That should be corrected. May it never be. Let's sin more so that God will get more glory. That's just dumb. And it may seem like a logical argument, but it's, it's utter foolishness. God is perfectly just in judging Israel for her sin and rebellion. And as we saw in Romans 2, judgment and wrath will come to the Jew first. So this asks us the question today, what about you? What about you today? You know, in many respects, America is like the nation Israel. Think about it. Think about how much gospel light has been shown on our nation. Can you think of any other land where the gospel is so free? It's everywhere. It's all over the internet. It's all over TV, the radio. Billboards driving down the road. Trust in Jesus. Jesus loves you. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Bibles are everywhere, and they're easily obtained. We have Bibles all over this church. Think about your own house. I probably have 50 Bibles in my house, probably 20 different translations. All of us together, if we were to put all of our Bibles into a pile, we'd probably have a 1,000 Bibles. How readily available is the gospel in our land? There, there's a church on nearly every corner. I, I, Natalie is in Brooklyn, New York. We go to visit her there. There's a church literally on every corner in Brooklyn, New York, and they're praising Jesus, preaching the gospel. My heart was so encouraged when we visit her. I'm like, praise God, his people are here. And they're praising him. Listen to it. So in so many ways, we are like the nation Israel. We're not, but we're not exactly, but we are like them. We have had light upon light upon light shown on us and freedom to worship. Oh, God, thank you for freedom to worship. All you got to do is go to the voice of the martyrs and see how the rest of the world suffers persecution for the sake of the gospel. They would never get together like this because people would bust through the doors and drag them out and beat them and throw them in prison. For years, yet we, we come together freely and we rejoice and have great fellowship and worship and freedom to do so. We have had a tremendous amount of light shown on us. So are we not equally responsible to walk in that light? Will we not 
perhaps incur a stricter judgment, perhaps, because of the light we've had in our lives? So it's easy to point a finger at Israel and say, oh, those knuckleheads, they constantly get it wrong. Look how they reject God. Look at all they've been given and they squander it. But boy, if we looked at our own accounts, like look at all the blessings we've been given in Christ Jesus, what are we doing with it? Are we squandering it? Fathers, are you teaching the Bible to your children? Are you leading your family spiritually? Are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? It starts in our families. It starts in our lives and in our families. Wives, are you living out the gospel? Loving your husband, supporting your husband, submitting to your husband? Children, are you listening to your parents? Are you, are you listening when they try to teach you godly principles in your life? Or are you say, oh, that's just dad quoting the Bible again. Are you listening? That's the light being shown on you. You have a responsibility to that light, children. Listen to it. Obey it. You'll be held accountable for that. You'll stand before Jesus and, and he'll look you in the face. And Remember when dad tried to teach you all this and then you went the other way? You're not getting away with that. We have so much gospel light in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds and all around us. Let's not squander it. Let's treasure it. Oh, Jesus, you're the treasure of my life. How can I walk in your word today and in your path today? And then others will see that in our lives and they will want it. His sheep are out there. And when they hear his voice, they come. And when we let that flow through us, we don't just soak it up like a bucket or a sponge. It has to flow out like a pipe. It flows through us to the world. And they see our love, they see our service, they see our humility, our kindness, and we say it's because of Jesus Christ I do these things for you. He has saved me, he loves me, and I'm sharing that love with you. That'll change someone. God will save their souls. And so let's not squander the light that has been given to us. Let's all be found faithful to the advantages and privileges God has given us. So pray with me, please. Lord, thank you for these truths. Thank you for your word. Thank you for shining the light of the gospel in our hearts, God. And help us with these things, Lord. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to love our neighbor as ourself. And help us, Lord, to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to go tell it on the mountain and proclaim it boldly with humility and meekness and love that the world may know you, Lord Jesus, and experience the great joy and blessings of salvation and abundant life that we have in our own hearts through faith in you. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.